And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There may be no more quietly accomplished uh, official in American political life uh, than former Governor Mike Levitt of Utah. He served three terms there uh, as administrator of the EPA under George W. Bush, and then in Bush's second term as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, Mike Levitt is uh, deeply respected by people on both sides of the aisle, something that's hard to find these days, and had a deep hand in two issues that are on the front burner in Washington today, health care and the environment. We talked about it the other day when we sat down at the University of Chicago. Governor Mike Levitt, thank you so much uh, for being here. Um, you know, I in uh, in getting ready to have this conversation today, I uh, looked at a little bit of your history, and I can't say that I know anybody else who can point to their lineage on down one lane to the Puritans and the <laughs> other to Mormon pioneers. Uh, tell me about your family. Well, I'm a Westerner, and that is, of course, by heritage. Um, my my father's um, heritage comes from England. My mother's comes from Sweden. Uh, they were both uh, Mormon pioneer families who found their way in different ways, uh, actually through Illinois, uh, and then to Utah. Um, my father grew up in a small town in the south, uh, the southern corner of of Nevada called Bunkerville, uh, my mother in a very small town. Now, we're talking a town of 300 people in both these cases, so very small, uh, in the south-central part of Utah called Loa, Utah. They met in a little town uh, called Cedar City, which is a college town where they both came to be the first in their family to go to college. Uh, they married, um, lived in a in a little mobile home with no re- re- with no uh, bathroom, uh, I was the oldest born to them. They walked to the hospital a few blocks away and had me. Uh, I lived in that little town for and the uh, mobile home. Actually, we uh, graduated from the mobile home to a basement <laughs> not too long after that. Uh-huh. But life has gotten nothing but better uh, for me, uh, and I have uh, great parents. I have uh, five brothers, no sisters. Um, grew up in this small town. Uh, I tell people that I, if you knew the sitcom Leave It to Beaver and uh, the adventure Bonanza and you molded those two, uh, that that is my adolescence. I am old enough to understand that reference, <laughs> well, you, uh, Governor. You know me well then. The um, uh, I have a note here that... Uh, that Thomas Dudley, the second colonial governor of Massachusetts, was an ancestor of yours? Well, you have to be um, pretty studious to get to it, but it's true. And uh-huh. um, actually, the, the, the Levitts landed in Massachusetts in, I think, seven, or 1629. The king's forester uh, was a Levitt, and he was sent here to find out if there was anything worth having uh, in these new colonies. And he returned saying there was a lot. <laughs> and so uh, the, the first Levitt uh, actually to come to the United States – well, to the to the colonies, uh, actually was a stowaway, as best I can tell. Um, he was an apprentice tailor and hated it. And, um, and that was, of course, a contract, a very serious contract. And he broke it, stowed away on the ship, uh, 
went to Massachusetts, found his way uh, into the northern uh, into into Vermont, and um, it, that's that's the history. And in the course of that, uh, that line uh, works its way into Thomas Dudley. So uh, the governor thing was. Uh, sort of in your genes oh, here a long way back. It, it was predestined. Yeah, that's <laughs> predestined. I had no choice. Thomas Dudley in 1600 made it all we're, possible. We're going to talk about the health care issue uh, in in a few minutes, but uh, you have a familiar, your family has a familiarity with the, this whole issue, insurance issue, uh, not just as a governmental policy issue, but uh, professionally, because your dad went into the insurance business, and you followed him in that business. I've actually had three careers in my life. I'm one of the lucky people who have enjoyed everything I have done. Yeah. My first career was uh, building businesses in the risk management world, and the second uh, was my government service, and the third, I've had the good fortune of spending most of my time thinking about health care since I left public service. So the, the whole area of how you manage risk and how you take care of people's needs in, in both economic sense as well as in a public policy sense has been a big part of my life. And your dad built this business? He did. Uh, he started it in the basement of, um, of his home. And um, over the course of – it still operates. They have 130-some-odd insurance brokerages around the country. And uh, it's a great American dream story, and I've – watched it happen um, because his office uh, was right next to my bedroom when he started. <laughs> and health care was part of that? It was a minor part of it. It mm-hmm. was mostly in other lines of insurance, uh, property and casualty, but it ultimately became part of it. And, and it was that was a valuable background for me. The whole area of how you manage risk and mm-hmm. how you create pools of risk and how what it takes to have the integrity um, uh, of actuarial science is a big part of what I learned as a young professional. Yeah, well, that's a handy, handy bit of knowledge right now when we're uh, talking about how to recast the Affordable Care Act. And I want to talk to you about that um, in a minute. But your dad uh, drifted into politics, uh, and you apparently drifted with him uh, along the way. My first um, recollection of anything political was – going to the Iron County Fair where my father was running for the state legislature. And to my great humiliation, my mother required that we wear a white T-shirt with a campaign brochure, Elmer's glued to our front and our back, and our job was to walk around and draw attention to ourselves. Uh, it was it was not a good start, but uh, he then became a member of the state legislature and ultimately ran for governor. Uh, and there was no one to manage his campaign who would work uh, harder or cheaper than me, and I ended up managing it. And while he did not lose, uh, he exceeded expectations, and it launched me into an entirely different path than I had expected. And what about it? Uh, what appealed to you about it? Because you're not—you don't strike me as someone who pastes things to himself to call attention to himself. Well, uh, that was not uh, that was my mother's insistence. Yes, I, no, I, I, understand, I, assure you. I understand. But <laughs> the point is, you're not. And I, uh, and I've spent some time in Utah. I worked uh, with Wayne Owens, mm-hmm. who you'll remember very oh, well. Of course, yes. And uh, Didi Corradini, the mayor of Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. was an old client of mine. So I got a chance to spend a lot of time uh, in Utah. And your temperament actually is well suited uh, to the state, but it's not a kind of look at me sort of uh, approach to politics. Well, I got into politics. Um, 
no, I, I can't say by accident. I've always been interested in it. But I, I started managing campaigns. And I managed uh, four Senate campaigns, a couple of governor's campaigns, got involved in the presidential uh, election. And it taught me the process. And then I got engaged in public service. And I found uh, first in education. And I, I, I could see that if you really wanted to get things done, you needed to be uh, – as they say in the Hamilton musical, in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, and that drew me uh, to an opportunity. And um, as they say, the, the rest is history. I ran for governor and was fortunate enough to win. Uh, I served there for three terms. Uh, I had opportunities then to play, uh, to occupy a couple of seats in a president's cabinet. Uh, it was, it's been a great ride. And I think what I've enjoyed about it mostly is that it makes you feel like you're involved in something bigger than yourself. Uh, and I think we all want that in one form or another, to feel as though our life matters, that our thoughts and ideas are uh, focused on in the improvement of society. And I found it there. You, um, you worked on the health care issue then in uh, Utah, and you, had, uh, you took your own measures to try and expand uh, coverage and particularly to children. Uh, talk about that. Well, I ran for governor in 1992. Of course, you'll remember that was the year Bill Clinton was elected, yes. and health care was a big issue. And, big and, issue. and I'll be honest, I, I did not see it coming uh, as a candidate, but it became evident to me I needed to learn more about it. Uh, that was natural for me because of my risk management background, but I dug into it and found it to be an issue that I found enormously interesting. I concluded that Ultimately, the approach was that was being taken nationally was was not the right approach. Meaning, and I'm not talking about the policy of it. I'm talking about the mechanics of how you get it done. Uh, rather than try to pass it all in one bill, I felt that there was a better way to approach it. And we laid out a blueprint in 1993, and then every year for the next five years, we added to the blueprint or we con we completed part of it. And so we did a lot of the things in the in the 90s that the Affordable Care Act did. We expanded coverage to age 26. We dealt with a lot of the of the rating issues. Uh, so the, none of this was new to me. I had dealt with it when I was when I was governor. And to to good results, you you uh, uh, now I'm reading you insured uh, 400,000 more state residents, which is a large number in a small mm -hmm. uh, in a small state. Uh, and uh, you uh, reduced uh, per capita cost of health care 25% below uh, the national average. Um, what's your fundamental philosophy on, uh, on health care? And, you know, there's a big debate as to um, uh, availability, access. What should our aspiration be in terms of health care? Well, I believe there's a widely held aspiration in America for everyone to have access to an affordable insurance policy. I, I don't think that divides us. I think that unites us. Uh, how we go about it is a bit different. The way I expanded it in Utah is, I think, interesting and somewhat relevant to this day. Um, I observed that as we were expanding Medicaid, for example, that there were certain of those populations that were getting benefits that went well beyond what a person who was working at a mill uh, or at a car dealership might have. And, that, and so I went to the federal government and said, if you'll let me engineer the, development, uh, the benefits just a bit differently, I'll take the savings and I'll apply it 
into a network that can cover more people. We'll give everyone something that we would consider to be credible coverage as opposed to giving a few substantially better with an aspiration that that someday everybody will get the best. And it worked. Uh, and uh, and I, then we began to focus on quality and recognizing that that you can that the, that the, the least expensive health care is generally the best care. That is to say, you're doing things at the right time in, in the right way. I had the benefit as governor of having a great health care system that was quite dominant in the area called Intermountain. It's well respected, mm-hmm. and there are other systems that do things similar, but. It was very early in the process when I began to learn about the the importance of quality and cost, not just cost, not just quality, but the combination of quality and cost. And people refer to that as value. And I think that's why so much of our discussion today is centered around that that intersection. I listened to you talking. You know, I was around the room the the, those years when the Affordable Care Act was being discussed, and a lot of the to- a lot of the subject matter was the same, which is how do we how do we reduce a cost, increase value, how do we encourage better practices, and how do we use the savings to uh, expand uh, coverage and so on. Um, how, what 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 is the affordable care? I know this is a freighted question in today's red hot political environment, but you know you've heard the president describe it as a disaster, and others have. They're, they're, this is an environment in which hyperbolic language uh, tends to rule the roost here. But what is your analysis uh, of what was accomplished, what wasn't accomplished, and uh, and what to do now? Well, let me start with what I think is the most important part of the Affordable Care Act, and that is that something happened. The system had been in gridlock for so long that there was it was hard to get the molecules to move uh, in a way that you could create any kind of I'm speaking of the figuratively yes. Uh, I would have done a lot of things differently, but the fact is they passed a bill. And since that time, there have been a lot of changes that that have occurred. Some have been intended, some have not. But I think you have to look at health reform not as a four-year or an eight-year or a 12-year proposition. I think we're actually 25 years into a 40-year transition. And that what happened in the Affordable Care Act was important because it allowed change to start. Now, we're going to, go, we're going to go through another iteration of change, I think, over the next few years or however long it, this process lasts. But it will build, I think, to a large extent on the chassis that was, that was built because there are things that Republicans and Democrats fundamentally agree on. And outside the politics, if you can come back to the kind of Google Earth view of this, uh, there's progress being made. We're iterating through different political periods, but there's progress that's being made. One of the uh, things that I think you advocated were uh, health care exchanges, um, and obviously that was a core of this bill. And a lot of Republicans, frankly, were uh, supportive of that concept over the years, and Governor Romney uh, applied them in Massachusetts. Uh, do you still believe in the exchanges? Oh, I, I have believed that— it's it's a market-based idea. Um, if you look at the history of this, you'll see that the first exchange uh, conversation actually took place in the 70s with Richard Nixon. 
and then you roll forward until uh, the 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 Clinton health reform, where they had what they called uh, it was a, I think called a regional co-op. Uh, with exchanges, the Republicans hated that, and and they ultimately defeated it. Then in two thousand and two or so, um, the Heritage Foundation came up with a concept they called an exchange. Uh, the Democrats hated that because it was a Republican idea, and they killed it. And then you go forward to two thousand and nine or ten. The writers of the ACA did a kind of clever thing. They they took the Democrat idea. Uh, uh, that Hillary Clinton had put forward. They took the Republican name of an exchange and they put it into the bill. And what we had was a a, a disagreement over whether it ought to look like what the Heritage Foundation had designed. What's the difference between that uh, that idea and what we got? Well, ultimately what happened in the ACA is that they compromised. Not a lot's made of that, but we had a, a situation where they said, Every state can have its own, and if you want to have one like Hillary Clinton designed, do it. If you want to have one like the Heritage Foundation, then do it. And then and what's the, the difference between the two? It's mostly the role of government, mm-hmm. which is what actually what a lot of this boils down to. Mm-hmm. It isn't a difference in in aspiration. It's a question of what's the role of government and, and, the, and the ACA, as well as what had been proposed in the 90s, had a lot of government involvement and a lot of government decision-making. I mean, I have observed over time as a scholar of political thought that these things boil down to really three questions. Uh, Who matters? uh, Who pays? And who decides? And in the context of the Democrat version, it's typically uh, they'll go a a lot deeper in terms of who matters uh, and who pays. They're willing to shift income from one to the other and who decides? They'll have the federal government decide. The Republicans will be – they'll likely not apply it to as many people. Uh, they will have the state government or consumers making decisions, and they'll have, they'll have less uh, shifting of income. And, but it's not a difference in our view of what ought to be done, and I think that's the foundation on which progress will always be made is building uh, on the things that you agree on. On the subject of who pays, i got to take a quick break here for a word from our sponsor. So we'll be right back with Governor Mike Levitt. You, you say that there, there is a basis for mutual uh, agreement or understanding on this, but it doesn't feel that way uh, now. There's a huge gulf between the way Republicans and Democrats in Washington, and and frankly, it's sort of morphed into the states, uh, describe uh, describe this. What is the way forward? Well, in this you, environment, you you, know? you have been out of Washington for a while, and so have I. And it and it's that's a, why we look so healthy. That, well, it's certainly why what shapes our views. Uh, I, I mean, I observed, and I'm sure you did, that what drives Washington is two things. Uh, preparation for the next election and maintaining control of the news cycle and and if you and both sides believe fervently that the other side won't do the right thing and uh, therefore they ought to have nothing happen until they become uh, in control yes. and then they will certainly do the right thing and so you end up then always with the same thing happening and that is the party coming into power will overreach uh, and and uh, and they tend not to get as much 
done as they could. I think there are things that Republicans and Democrats agree on. We started with the fact that people ought to have insurance. I think you can get them agree to agree that that coordinated care is a lot better than uncoordinated care. I think you can get them to agree that the way we pay for health care is wrong and that we ought to change it away from this, what we call the fee-for-service system, to mm-hmm. something where they're working on value. Uh, and I think there's, there's... And we've moved in that direction. And we have moved in that direction. And I think that ought to be acknowledged. In fact, I look at the Affordable Care Act, and if you were to ask me what I think its biggest contribution has been, it... Aside from just getting us started, uh, I think it has given great momentum to the idea that we need to change the way we pay for health care. That that alone, over the course of a decade or two, will be among the most significant contributions that any period could – uh, could make and at the core of that is this notion that if you pay pay fee for service it puts uh it it puts pressure on the providers to 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 encourage uh the use of uh of, of medical services of doctors appointments of tests and all so all the incentives are misplaced uh, it, i i've said at times it's it's like a disease chronic more everybody gets does better with more, and that's not good for the system. If you want to make more money as a healthcare provider, just do more, more procedures. Uh, if you're a if you're a consumer and and you're not paying for it, then why not just get more? And so the system has to change, or the problem won't be resolved. And I think the Affordable Care Act at least began to acknowledge the fact. Now, I want to say this: that was in the Affordable Care Act. But I know with some certainty that the writers of the bill said we can't just go about getting everybody insured. We have to do something to change the cost curve. And they went to CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and said to them, do you folks have anything that would help us bend the cost curve? And I know they had to have said, yes, we have a lot of things that we've been working with are working to accomplish the last four years. There's a lot of demonstration projects on this thing called value-based care. And the reason that – and they basically just put them in the statute. That was developed during the the second term of George W. Bush. Now, we don't think of the ACA having anything that's bipartisan, but the reality is exchanges were an idea that had been to a large extent uh, thought of as Republican idea. The whole idea of value payment was not – knew it was something that we had been working hard on and it's those are the things that for the most part have endured yeah and nancy ann DeParle, who is here with you uh today for a program at the institute of politics uh had a conversation with me uh earlier and um she also points out that the reduction of of uh of infection rates in hospitals and readmission rates in hospitals. Um, I know you were a big proponent, an early proponent of healthcare IT, so that you could connect people's medical records in a way that you wouldn't have to re- replicate tests and uh, uh, you could make the system more efficient. All of this was part of that. I think it's one of the reasons why the projected growth of healthcare uh, from uh, 2014 to 2019 is about 11% lower than they had anticipated because some of these reforms uh, have taken hold. Uh, but let me ask you this. You are a retired politician. Um, I don't know if you're planning to run for anything again, but 
uh, you look relatively um, sane to me and <laughs> pretty happy. So I'm assuming that you're not ready to jump in right at this moment. Um, but if you were, if you were a Republican politician uh, right now, um, what are the hazards of, yes, of uh, saying just what you just said? There are things about this that are good that are valuable, that we should retain and that we should build on. Um, that seems almost like a, uh, a revolutionary concept in this hothouse environment that we're in. Well, there are lots of people who say it, but I, having been in politics, uh, I know the value of a good phrase. Uh, and the Republicans dined out for three elections in a row on the idea of repeal and replace. And I think it's to be expected that there will be a bill that will be titled Repeal and Replace. And that's probably about the only thing we know with certainty. (laughs) What we don't know is how will the word repeal be defined and how will the word replace be defined. And again, I think if you look at this in the context of of history and say that we are 25 years into a 40-year process, this didn't start with Barack Obama. Uh, it, it it started before Bill Clinton, and it's being driven by something other than politics. It's being driven by economic imperatives that we have as a country. That's the critical thing to understand is that this is not being driven by politics. It's it's being guided at times by politics. It's being affected by politics. Well, maybe at times exploited by politics. But it's clearly being driven by an economic imperative that we have as a country there's no place on the economic leaderboard for a country that spends 25% of its gross domestic product on health care. We have to fix this. And I think as the pressure for that intensifies, the reality will, will – the, the emergency will become greater. Now, you ask about my view on the Republicans. I think the Republicans have a profound opportunity uh, if they if they will – act in a responsible way and solve some of the deficiencies of the of the Affordable Care Act, and there are some, um, it, it, they, will, they will, in fact, have a, 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 a – they'll be rewarded. Now, the, the question will be, will they overreach? They've got, to have, they've got to have democratic votes in the Senate. And so at some point in time, this will follow the same pattern it always follows, and that is that they will overreach initially – and then there'll be some pushback, and then the big question is, will the pressure be great enough, or will it happen soon enough that, that the, the politics of this won't take over? They, they, they could make some very good adjustments, and we could mark, march forward as a society far better served. The, um, the, you're right that you said the Republicans have dined on repeal. Replace sort of came later when there was this recognition that, you know, there are actually some popular elements of this program, and the popular elements of the program are things like uh, the inclusion of people with uh, pre-existing conditions, the end of lifetime caps on insurance, so that if you get seriously ill, you can, you're not going to face uh, those kind of limitations. The insurance of people under 26, and you mentioned that you were an early proponent of uh, of that on their parents' uh, insurance. Uh, you know, you know the modeling better than anybody, um, 
how do you maintain the things that everybody loves about the Affordable Care Act, even if they don't like the brand of Obamacare? How do you preserve those? And the president says he wants to. The Congress says they would want to. How do you preserve those um, and, uh, and re- repeal the law uh, and take the mandate away that encourages people to join so you have a large enough pool? You talk about risk pools. Uh, how do you do that? Well, I think we, first of all, have to just acknowledge that words matter, and they matter to different people for different reasons, and we fight over words a lot more than we ought to. Uh, The Republicans right now want to fight on repeal and replace. The Democrats want to fight that it not happen. Well, the reality is um, when it gets right down to it, the Republicans are going to call whatever they do repeal and replace. And when they get down to what they can actually get done, uh, it's likely to be, there'll be some new things, but for the most part, uh, it's going to be finding ways uh, to make more functional that which we had before the ACA or that hat we have after. Um, and then we'll have a fight about what actually happened and who deserves the credit. <laughs> but you know, I, I have a much I think if you Probably step, will want to see what happens before people decide whether they want to grab credit. That, that's that's a it's a it's a good uh, <laughs> when you play golf. They say don't uh, don't say anything until the ball stops rolling. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sorry, I cut you. Uh, I cut you off. But do you think that those elements that I mentioned uh, will survive? And if they do, don't they have? Isn't this a matter of? Uh, tinkering with the model we have rather than actually replacing it? Uh, There will be enough change on what's there that the Republicans can properly have a list of things they repealed, and there will be some things that they'll say they replaced. But, uh, look, I, I just think the reality of this is that what we're going to see is a political process that will produce change. It'll, it will iterate uh, where the parties come down and how they define it will be depend on where they stand. And are you being consulted on this? Have you been in touch with Dr. Price and uh, and others? I know you you had some role in the transition. Uh, I know you weren't part of the the uh, the Trump campaign. You were for Governor Kasich, I think. Uh, but um, uh, have they drawn on your expertise? I work. Um, as much as I'm asked, which is fairly regularly, with uh, members of the leadership in Congress, uh, and uh, if uh, when Tom Price is nominated and confirmed, or he has been nominated when he's confirmed, I suspect I'll have some involvement with them. Um, I hope they'll ask because it it would be a mistake not to ask people what happened before, and that's one of the things that often in a democracy we don't do enough of. Um. Before we leave healthcare, I want to talk a little bit about Medicare uh, and Medicaid because um, the president said he doesn't want to touch uh, Medicare, Social Security, um, and uh, there are many who think that uh, the actuarial tables are such that there might be some adjustments necessary. Nancy Ann feels that some of the steps the Affordable Care Act took strengthened uh, Medicare. Um, what's your view of, of that? If there was a lesson I learned as Secretary of Health, it would be that if you want to transform health care, you have to change Medicare. 
because it's the only payment system that exists the same in every uh, village, uh, hamlet, and city, uh, and state in America. Uh, and it drives many of the other payment systems. So we ultimately have to deal with Medicare. I doubt it will be this year uh, because of the weight of what's being dealt with uh, with the um, with the so-called repeal and replace legislation. Medicaid will be because it's such a big part of it. Now, I've been through this uh, three times in the last 20 years as governor and as secretary of health, and I can give the block grant speech as well as anyone in America. Uh, but I think as a, as a practical matter, uh, while there will be changes in Medicaid, it will likely be uh, they they have a, a dilemma in Congress. They have a lot of states that have expanded Medicaid already who have Republican governors. They have a group of Republican governors who didn't and are considered good soldiers in the fight. Now they're not in a position where they're able to say uh, to them, uh, well, you didn't do anything, so we're going to just leave you out of the money. Uh, they have to do something that will allow states to sort of equalize the benefit. And I believe what they will end up doing is that they will realize that the the whole idea of block grants is probably unnecessary because there's a lot of authority through the ACA that's now in the hand of the secretary, and they can likely give the states the flexibility they need through that mechanism. They're also going to have budget challenges. Every Congress does, but in this case, they're looking at a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure, looking at re, re, rebuilding the military. And if you begin to say, how am I going to get money to do that? You can't reduce Medicaid too much because you've got the problem I just described. Uh, they're likely to take a lot of the same dollars and find ways to uh, more systematically spread them across a larger group of people. Can I take a, uh, a short break and we'll be right back. Uh, with Governor Levitt. I don't want to leave our discussion without talking a little bit about the environmental issues because before you uh, were the uh, Secretary of HHS, you were the administrator of the EPA, which is another uh, kind of freighted issue in today's uh, uh, debate. But you uh, administered some... um, higher standards in terms of emissions, and you obviously take this issue seriously. I should just ask you as a preliminary question, what is your view of this whole issue of climate change and what the obligation of the government is relative to uh, that issue? First, I think environmental issues go well beyond uh, climate change. The, the climate yeah, change absolutely. Issue. And, we and as a to, Westerner, you're yeah. probably very acutely aware of that. And we tend to uh, symbolize a person's position based on where they are, what they what the words they use yeah. uh, on 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 climate change. I, I came to understand that there was no political philosophy for balance uh, in in the environment. I, I remember once while I was head of the EPA pulling up into a uh, an intersection and seeing two bumper stickers. One said um, uh, earth first, 
we'll mine the other planets later. <laughs> and the other said, uh, save the earth, kill yourself. And, and I thought to myself, there's got to be some place in between that, that, that makes more sense than either of those. And yet that's the way we talk about the environment in the con- philosophically. And there's no real place in the political debate for finding the balance between sustainability and, and development. And I think that ought to be the objective of policy thinkers, is to find that balance. Uh, and, and I think that's true um, for, I, you know, I, I, I was engaged often uh, in this discussion with our friends uh, and trading partners around the world uh, when I was the head of the EPA and when I was governor. And, you know, there, there's something to be said for the fact that there's clearly a problem here. I mean, let me restate that. There's clearly a problem. The Earth's surface is clearly getting warmer. And certainly, human beings have something to do with that. The, the degree to which we know what to do about it is, is, is less certain. But it gets all mixed up in international politics and trade policy and all kinds of other things. And so, in, in my view, if you can focus on solving the problems that you know, uh, and certainly climate change is one of them. Then I think you can make progress. The the uh, the fact that it is all mixed up in international politics um, speaks to uh, the importance of sort of a global solution, so that everybody's kind of in the same uh, has have, have the same requirements. Because what you hear a lot about uh, from uh, people who uh, take a position that we should stand down on a lot of these measures to deal with climate change is. Well, yeah, but then the Chinese will take advantage, or the or India will take uh, advantage, and uh, that was the appeal of this uh, Paris Accord, which also imperfect, but a big step forward because the Chinese were in India uh, was in. Should we um, should we honor that agreement? Should we carry forward? We're in this peculiar position now, where the Chinese, China, China and India are now mm-hmm. lecturing us on climate change. You know, that's, I think, one of the problems over the course of a 50-year history is the United States does keep its commitments, and not everybody else does. I was at dinner one night with one of the senior ministers of science and in, uh, with, in China, and I, I asked him, this was, this was actually before I was in the federal government, I was governor at the time, and he said, you people have an economy. We don't. So when we get an economy, come back and talk to me then. Now, I, 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 that, that's where the this gets all fouled up in international trade politics. And I'm 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 not suggesting. I frankly have not studied the Paris Accords enough. I'm spending most of my time thinking about healthcare, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I'm not in a position to occupy to express a well-grounded opinion. But I do know that. Uh, you know, I have seen international cooperation done well. Uh, while I was a head of the Environmental Protection Agency, I participated in the development of a what was referred to as Global Earth Observation. Uh, I think it was called GEOS, and I, I'll get the acronym wrong. But it's a it's an it's a, a system of satellites and weather stations and ships and others that are tracking things that are happening around the globe and that we have as a family of nations 
found a way to essentially monitor the temperature of the earth and the weather patterns together. Now, if you can create something that elaborate, you can solve these problems. But it does require a collaborative spirit, not a gaming spirit. Uh, and one of the dilemmas we've faced is that not everybody keeps their commitments like the Americans do. You, uh, I mean, the Chinese have an impetus because their environment, in addition to dealing with climate change, just the, the use of uh uh, of uh, coal and other fuels fouled their environment to the point where they have health issues that are uh, conspicuous. Uh, so there is more of an impetus probably than there was uh, before. You were a proponent of cap and trade, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, much like exchanges, yeah. is a market-based uh, yeah, approach. I, for the life of me, I, I don't understand how cap and trade become... Um, what it has politically. I mean, to me, it's a market-based solution. And it's, again, I've spent more time thinking about healthcare than I have the environment. But yeah. I, I think a well-executed cap-and-trade system um, makes more sense than a system where the government simply steps in and decides who pollutes and who doesn't. You get a better and more equitable outcome. Now, I think there are ways in which you could turn those words, cap and trade, into an entirely different system than what I'm trying to describe for you. And I suspect that that's where the debate comes, is that we often adopt one another's words and then make it something else. Uh, you can call it cap and trade then make and make it a very compulsive uh, system. Uh, but in, a, in the pure sense of where you're using market economies, to systematically drive down the amount of pollution allowed into the environment, it's an, it's much more, it will produce a better result than if you simply have the government deciding arbitrarily uh, how to reduce uh, the pollutants because be, it's a ham-handed approach. Either way, whether you, whether you take that approach or uh, uh, more of a comp- what you call compulsory approach, there are going to be winners and losers. Because it's the nature of these things, and some of the old sources of energy, coal in particular, uh, has been a, a loser in this. We've seen in the last uh, decade, and part of it has to do with investments the government has made: solar energy, wind energy uh, on on the uh, on on the ascension. Um, but how do you manage the politics of that? You know, the president did pretty well telling coal miners that he was going to bring the coal industry back and i think feels obligated i know he was speaking about it on the day that we're meeting he was talking about it uh today but is that can you accommodate um the demands of a of our environment and and make and follow through on those commitments if you go back uh 25 years ago when i was first in politics the word nuclear was a terrible word no one wanted anything to do with nuclear energy um, and emphasized all the bad things that could occur. Now it's seen as a relatively clean form, and it can it can be used to do away with coal. Uh, during the time when I was head of the EPA, we were we were uh, pounding on the, on the coal businesses to come up with with large new um, cleaning devices where they could take 
the pollution out of the air, and they felt oppressed because we were requiring them to uh, put these scrubbers uh, on at literally billions of dollars of, uh, of expense. But the politics of it is that at one point the politics were against, was against nuclear and 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 now they're against coal. And in my mind, if we if we ought to be measuring the result uh, as opposed to just attacking specific industries, you know, people who have the sort of all other uh, approach, there's a recognition that there's good and bad and pluses and minuses. And if you're going to have a, an energy policy, uh, why eliminate? sources of energy if you can get them as clean or on balance better now i'm not here to broad i'm not here to make the case for coal i'm just saying that no i hear you that the politics actually barack obama said that when he was running for uh president in 2008 and he you know illinois has a has coal in the southern part of the state um so you know i i think if I ever wrote a book on presidential politics. I'd first of all ask you to write the foreword. But right. I, think I, 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 I will agree right now, yeah, I, I just think, on the basis of this conversation. <laughs> I think I would, I would have a chapter that would be titled uh, "Water, Coal, Corn, and Sugar," because when you begin to look at the equation of 270 electoral votes, and you begin to look at the impact that those commodities have in the context of presidential politics it's profound yeah and it's it and 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 so it turns out that a lot of the attacks for and against all those commodities and the way they're used tend to be based on the politics that you're trying to develop in a coalition to gain power that has nothing to do with the science of it it has nothing to do with the economics of it it has a lot to do with the politics of it and so if you're if you're trying to solve an environmental problem getting down to the science of it and looking at it op- uh, on an open-minded basis how c- and not just attacking industry segments and then 20 years later attacking a different one and adopting the other, how, how can you defend that you can't other than the fact that it turns out to be all mixed up in the in the politics, in the politics, yeah, science itself is uh, kind of become a controversial, <laughs> controversial pursuit in the in the pol- in the hot house politics of uh, of today, and that complicates all. Well, of listen, these I, 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 I I ran the Environmental Protection Agency for a time, and so I learned a lot. I was governor for a time. I. And everyone would come to me and talk to me about the science. And what I learned very early was to ask the question, whose science? Because science is not, does not lack competition. And there are people who, who will maintain that they have science on their side, on both sides. Yeah. There are some things, though, there's a, and, you know, you've spoken to it, like on the climate change issue, there's sort of pretty much of a unanimity of opinion, you really have to search for those dissenting voices. Uh, well, there are fewer and fewer of them that are credible. But uh, my, my, but again, environmental environmentalism is a lot more than climate change. Yes, yes. And so when you start dealing with these issues, you, I think, we have to acknowledge that. Um, do you know Scott Pruitt, who's taking your old job at the EPA? I've only spoken with him. I don't have a what I would say a long-standing. And what's your sense of him? He's Pretty controversial. Well, he, he, I know he's controversial. He seems like a he seems like a, a 
bona fide uh, person uh, who the President of the United States has chosen. Uh, and uh, I think I'd be surprised if we didn't agree that a president deserves to have the people he appoints uh, and then live with the consequence. Uh, I, I like the fact that he views states as an important tool. I think I like the fact that he talks a bit about balance, uh, and I think he deserves a chance to be there, and the president will will, uh, will bear the burden or the benefit of, of his service. Let's talk about uh, – so you talk about the earth heating. Let's talk about what we've been sort of intimating throughout this, the heating up of our politics, and how do we take the toxicity out of it. I mentioned you supported Governor Kasich, and a lot of his campaign was predicated on this notion that we have to take the toxic, toxicity out of uh, our politics. And he uh, and he wasn't very successful. I mean, he was he, he got he he was one of the last people standing, but uh, far behind uh, uh, Donald Trump. You are you are a, a plainly someone. Of civility, uh, you're plainly someone who uh, is respectful of different points of view. Um, I, th- I suspect it's one of the reasons why you've been successful uh, in your own uh, pursuits. How do we get that back into our politics? I was home on a Saturday once years ago, and they used to have a TV program called The Wide World of Sport. I remember, yes. And uh, in between the seasons of the major sports, they would have odd sports. And one of them was a surfing competition in Hawaii with giant waves. And the commentator was talking about how uh, it was scored. And he pointed out that the surfers were out in the water with looking over their shoulder. And the reason was they were waiting for the right wave. And he said, if you don't get the right wave, you can be great, have great skills, but never get to the beach. And I I just think we have to acknowledge that what happened in 2016 was a was a wave of that we that that, that a lot of people don't understand. And, and probably a lot of people like me uh, don't fully understand it. I believe that a lot of what is people are feeling is a lack of functionality in government. I tend to believe that's why people are as opposed as they are about the ACAs, because it's become a symbol of a non-functional government. Uh, Those symbols can quickly attach themselves to the new people. It's a functionality in government. People want government to do things to make their lives better and to set the politics aside. I've been in it long enough, and you have too, to know that that's not something that simply comes when people agree to lay down their swords. Uh, it happens when uh, people demand it long enough and when people be, uh, reward it at the ballot box. That's the last thing. We, we, did, we, we were as far from that right now or in 2016 as we have ever been. Was it because of frustration or because they wanted more of it? I believe it was just out of frustration. They're going to try something different. But I think in the final analysis, what people want is functionality and to be allowed to live out their lives in a place where they can, where government plays its role. You know, my concern um, as someone who really believes deeply in the institutions of our democracy is that there's a growing cynicism about those institutions and um, uh, 
I, you know, uh, without getting into sort of where all, you know, which party deserves the blame for most of it and so on. I may have a one view of this and you may have another. But, you know, I, I look at, uh, I saw a poll the other day globally, and this is, uh, this is a global mm-hmm. uh, epidemic, uh, lack of confidence in institutions, uh, not just government, but uh, in, uh, in the press, uh, in business, uh, you know, in, in a whole variety of institutions that are sort of pillars uh, of our side. But we're feeling it here uh, for sure. And I, I do worry about um, this sort of uh, kind of walking down a path of mutually assured destruction where each side enrages the other and and the other side uh, reacts. And I worry deeply about it uh, for, the, for the very same reason. But the reality is a nation is not just made by borders. It's made by the aggregate of the hearts of the people. And um, you know, we, have, we as citizens owe an obligation here too to demand that as opposed to demanding something else because when when the voice of the people moves someplace our democracy responds it responds in lots of unique and and sundry ways but it responds uh, we're getting the government right now that that um, that we're creating and until we begin to demand people working together and maybe that's what this was about. I don't. I, I don't. Well, there is an argument that Donald Trump uh, looked like a guy who could mm-hmm. uh, bang heads together, who wasn't really an ideologue, and um, and wasn't from the political class, and therefore might be able to bring, you know, some uh, cohesion, uh, or at least force some action. And let's face it, um, I think a lot of people would say he was he was not the perfect candidate for that purpose i think it's fascinating i mean we're sitting here in a school of political yeah, science right. uh, if we were having a lecture from a political science professor he would say it was the elites versus the non-elites uh, you know the the fascinating thing is that the non-elites chose donald trump to be their voice it may be that he was the person who could express their frustration well enough uh, i i don't i can't I can't reconcile all that. All I can say and, and believe is that at, at root, a nation is the aggregate of what's going on in the hearts and minds of the people of that country. And, um, and I believe that the American people were saying, I, I want a functional government. I want a limited government. And both of those things are not true. Right. And uh, and and I and I think at some point there will be a candidate who can bring that back together, but it will likely be a person who is not promising a much bigger federal government. Yeah, the uh, what you're uh, just just judging from the um, I, I guess I could argue the other side, which is that you know. Uh, Certainly, they didn't vote for limited government in, and I think you were saying that in choosing Trump because he wasn't really offering limited government. But um, what was your what's your sense? I know you were the transition uh, director for Governor Romney in 2012, and I know you've 
spent a lot of time thinking about transitions from one administration to the other. Um, how do you evaluate um, the start? That uh, it, I mean, it, it feels like we've been at this for about a year, but as we sit here, uh, President Trump's only been in office for a couple of weeks, two and a half weeks or something. But how do you judge the way the transition got out of the blocks? I think a lot of the preparation that should have been done wasn't. I think they have um, worked very hard since, and I think they've been able to, to a large extent, keep up. Um, and um, but I don't think it will go down in history as a as a classical um, transition that people will emulate. They also have a structure that's sort of unusual in that, you know, in the White House I worked in, and I suspect in the White Houses that you've dealt with and that you were planning, there's generally a, a structure that runs through the chief of staff, uh, and people report to the chief of staff, and the chief of staff reports uh, to the president. That's not. It doesn't appear that that's the way this White House has worked. Mr. Bannon has uh, quite a bit of power. Uh, the president's son-in-law is there. I don't know. He seems to be rather influential. Um, can that work? Can it work with competing power centers? Uh, I would be um, surprised if it functioned the way uh, uh, previous um, White Houses have. Maybe they'll reinvent it, and we'll all be emulating that model later. But I, like I, I don't. Um, You've run a few of these I yourself have. as a governor. I have, and 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 I've spent a lot of time studying and participating in the White House, and they're doing it differently. But look, that's that's their right, um, and and I, they will learn. Uh, I think I think it was Mark Twain who made a kind of impolitic comment when he said a man will learn lessons he can learn no other way holding a cat by the tail <laughs> uh, and, and i uh, be clear I, I would never hold a cat by the tail but it, it does ju- uh, give me a, an image they, you know, they will they're going to learn as they go and uh, they'll find that there's a reason that those things uh, were done the way they were maybe we'll all learn some lessons from them too well, as you and I both know, having spent some time in Washington, that in Washington those cats can bite. They've got fangs and they've got uh, mm-hmm. claws. So we'll see how it all works out. Governor Mike Levitt, thank you so much, uh, not just for being here, but for being at the Institute of Politics to discuss health care at such a momentous uh, time in that debate. Well, it, there's a lot to think about, and I, I think it's important, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Politics.uchicago.edu